So often when we leave church on Sunday and go to work on Monday, there's a sense that we're leaving one part of our lives and entering another. Today's guest explores how we integrate the two parts of our lives into one. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host. One theme we return to time and again at Upper House is whole life integration. This means we desire to see Christians who've brought their faith to bear on every aspect of who they are, their minds and emotions, their actions and their relationships, and also their work. For the vast majority of us who do not serve in direct ministry roles, it can often seem like the church is the primary way to serve God. But that's not how the Bible portrays work. In this episode, we hear from the executive director of the faith and work organization Made to Flourish. His name is Matt Rustin, and he's sitting down with Upper House's executive director, John Terrell, to talk about the importance of closing the gap between Sunday and Monday. In other words, of erasing some of the artificial lines we draw between the church and work life and between sacred and secular work. Matt Rustin received his Master of Divinity degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and has served in churches in North Dakota, the Chicago area, in Kansas City. Before entering his current role as executive director of Made to Flourish, he was pastor of spiritual formation at Blackhawk Church here in Madison. Here's an upwards conversation with John and Matt Rustin. So I am so excited to have uh, an opportunity to speak with you today, Matt. I've admired your work for a long time and just really encouraged by everything that Made to Flourish is doing. I would love to get a little bit more of your background. Um, I know you in more recent years, but I don't know you. Um, I don't know that the younger Matt um, growing up and and even where you went to college and those kinds of things. Tell me a little bit about your early years. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, thanks, John. Just uh, honored to be with you today and love the work uh, you all are doing at, at Upper House. So uh, I grew up in a small town in North Dakota. And it was the sort of place where uh, the high school and the middle school and the elementary school are all in one, you know, kind of big building. And my yes. dad was the high school superintendent there, oh, population 400 people, uh, you know, nine kids in my graduating class. So, um, you know, part of what that means is I was the sort of kid that got to do a lot of things growing up. I was on the basketball team, the football team, and I was in the school theater and I was in, uh, you know, the, the band and the choir. And so I, I think that actually frames my story because in in God's providence, um, I'm a person who likes to do a lot of different things yes. and, and have a lot of experience doing a lot of different things. But being a small town kid from North Dakota, I uh, went to the local state school, so North Dakota State University up in Fargo, North Dakota. Right. And uh, began there uh, kind of on a science and math scholarship. So I was uh, kind of pre-med at that time. But I was spending all my time in the music building. So uh, trumpet, piano, singing, et cetera. So I, I switched over to music. Um, I, I sometimes tease and joke. I was uh, I went from pre-med to, to, to music, which was kind of mm -hmm. like pre-unemployment, the track <laughs> I was on. So because I, I didn't want to be a teacher, uh, but I was doing this music degree. So anyway, I uh, had a great time uh, 
there at, at school and, and got involved in some campus ministries, did a lot of worship leading for some different um, things that were going on. And it was really exciting as, a, as an undergrad. Um, but during that time in my undergrad, I was... Um, I really fell in love with the writing of, of C.S. Lewis. Uh, like, you know, many people have that story kind of in their college years. But I, I feel like there was never a point in time in my kind of early to mid-20s when I wasn't without one of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily his, uh, his essays and his nonfiction. Uh, a lot of people know him for his fiction or his autobiography or, you know, some of these other works. But it was really, I, I fell in love with his essays. So uh, works like uh, The Weight of Glory, um, uh, God in the Dock, um, uh, uh, Christian Reflections. Uh, there's a number of, of books that are collections of his essays. And yeah. he became my hero. And I thought, gosh, if I can go do what he did <laughs> when I grew up, I thought that would be pretty sweet. So actually, when I graduated from college, uh, I worked a year at Microsoft uh, yeah. right there in Fargo. So um, John, I, I know you have connections with the Seattle area, uh, but there's actually a pretty uh, decent sized office for Microsoft in Fargo. I think they have 1,500 or 2,000 employees right, there. Right. Um, so spent uh, a year uh, there with the intention that I would go to seminary, get a quick master's degree and go do a PhD and be a religion professor or a theology professor. Uh, of course, that wasn't uh, C.S. Lewis' exact track. He was a Renaissance literature and and philosophy, but um, I I thought I would go to a liberal arts college and be a professor there. And uh, when I went to Trinity in Chicago, uh, Trinity Seminary, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to be specific, um, my first semester there, this is back in 2005, uh, I loved the studies, but I realized the things that I loved to do were not things that professors did. and I was, I think I was a little bit f- afraid of it, maybe running from it, but I, I realized the things that I loved to do were things pastors did. Uh, my experience was in the local church. Uh, my heroes were, were pastors that were kind of public theologians. And um, so I, I switched over to a master's of divinity track and, and eventually graduated. And uh, from there, um, I did a pastoral residency program in Kansas mm-hmm. City as my first pastoral position. And it was modeled after a hospital residency uh, where you've done all kind of your book learning, but now you're going to have a full-time role and be mentored and trained. So I did that at a church in Kansas City. And uh, then came up to Madison and uh, served at a church there. Loved loved my experience at a church, uh, Black Hawk uh, Church there in Madison. And uh, for the last, now I began my eighth year, I uh, was asked to come back and, and uh, help get an organization started uh, as the executive director here at Made to Flourish, uh, which is in Kansas City. But we have a network of about 4,300 pastors and churches across the country who, who kind of follow along with what we do. Yeah, that's a great background, and I'm assuming you didn't talk much about your home life. But did you grow up in a in a family that was um, a church going family committed to to um, you know uh, the Christian faith, and and or did that come later in life? Yeah, no, good good question, John. Yeah, um, grew up and and faith was very important in uh, my house. My mom and dad uh, at church every every Sunday, and and they actually attended a, a small charismatic uh, Pentecostal church actually mm-hmm. about fifteen miles outside of my uh, small hometown, and, and it was a good church. You know, they they talked about the Bible, and and I I had a real faith by the time I was in high school, and 
and had made that my own. Um, so my parents really modeled that. And yeah. I, I probably credit my mother. I saw her opening her Bible every single day and she just loved preachers. She was always listening to, you know, the radio, different preachers. So if I have a love for speaking and preaching and, and Bible study, uh, it, it probably came from her. Yeah, that's where it came from. Well, I yeah. know you talked about your first pastoral assignment uh, in Kansas City, and I think that's where you first met Tom Nelson. And I wonder if you could, he, he plays a significant role in the, in the founding of Made to Flourish, but I wonder if you could touch on that relationship and maybe a bit about Tom as a person and as a leader and as a pastor. Um, I want to ask you about kind of the moment, uh, the inflection, the important inflection point that came in his own teaching and preaching and um, church leadership life as well. But take us back to that, that time with Tom and then how you came to be reconnected with Tom years later. Yeah, Tom is just a, he's a wonderful, faithful pastor. He's been at the same congregation that he planted in 1989 for now the last uh, 33 years uh, in Kansas City. And um yeah, he's just kind of a faithful, nose-to-the-grindstone sort of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just kind of wakes up every day and, and uh, does what needs to happen. But yeah, he, he would say that about 10, 15 years into his pastoral life, so this is now the early 2000s, he had um, a pretty big shift in his understanding of what it meant to be a pastor and to be a faithful pastor. And um, much of that was studying the earlier early chapters of Genesis, immersing himself in the reformers, and realizing that as a pastor, he was committing what he called pastoral malpractice. He actually had a dramatic moment in front of his congregation when he kind of confessed to pastoral malpractice. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you hear that in a congregation, you're you're you know waiting to hear something scandalous. <laughs> yes, but yeah, you sure are. For for Tom, he just said, "Listen, I've I've come to realize that I've been spending a majority of my time equipping you for a minority of your lives." In other words, I've been worried about my Sunday performance, kind of getting you here to my programs, but I haven't been nearly as concerned with how the gospel, your, your faith in Christ relates to where you're spending the majority of your time. And he, he said, I, I don't even really all know what that means, but I, I know there needs to be a change in, in the way that we do things around here. And what's interesting is that began a journey for Christ community that continues to this day. Um, you look on their website, they don't have a lot of programming around helping people mm -hmm. connect faith with, you know, their daily work and, and the economy. But anyone who attends the church just feels it and sees it and knows it. It's, it's part of their uh, core DNA. And yeah. they've been able to watch over the last 15 to 20 years what happens when a pastoral staff presses into this more and more with each mm -hmm. year, but also the impact that it has in the lives of regular congregation members that are trying to faithfully follow Jesus and, and relate to that to where they spend a majority of their time. And you end up seeing these really beautiful stories that um, are not yet finished, but are works in progress of what God is doing uh, out there in the scattered church. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious, you know, you were at Blackhawk. I met you during the Blackhawk years. So you had, you did that early work out of seminary at Christ Community Church. You came to Madison. Um, and then you decided at some point to go back and to be a part of really launching this Made to Flourish um, network. Um, did you have a similar kind of epiphany? What, what brought you back um, 
to join Tom as the founder of Made to Flourish and really see this thing, um, you know, get off the ground in significant ways. You know, was there a, a similar kind of epiphany moment in your own life that that prompted you to make this turn? It's a good question. There wasn't is the short answer, um, at, at least not in the same way that it happened for Tom. And much of that was because my first full-time pastoral experience out of seminary was in an environment that valued this, that was modeling this, that was pressing into it. Uh, so there wasn't a big time of unlearning for me. Mm -hmm. It's not that this this wasn't new, but my that was my first pastoral experience. So that was really my pastoral paradigm leaving Christ Community Church. And, and the good news is when I uh, began my time at Black Hawk in Madison, it's such an amazing church for those of your listeners who are familiar with Black Hawk. Um, it's the sort of church that is embodying these values and ideals and, and seeking to live into them more and more. It was part of their core documents that I'd seen when I'd interviewed there. And it was really a place where I got to try out um, some of these ideas that I had about what would it look like to come alongside people in their faith journey and how that related to their work. So we tried lots of experiments uh, during my time there. We were not looking to leave Blackhawk. We loved Madison and we loved the church. But as I understood uh, the opportunity and what it was going to look like to establish a national network of churches that were trying to learn this uh, more and more, um, it felt like a really um, important opportunity that I was open to. So yeah, we, well, that's great. Well, let's get into Made to Flourish. I'd love to hear more. Uh, I'm curious about how you describe the mission of Made to Flourish. And I know our, our listeners are as well. Um, what are the primary things that you hope to achieve uh, in, in Made to Flourish's work? Yeah, our mission statement is to equip pastors and their churches to integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their communities. And um, you know, at the, at the heart of it, what we're trying to help churches do is have a vocationally informed approach to discipleship and mission. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there, right? So what does it look like for pastors and churches to become vocationally informed? Um, it involves understanding God's big story for work in the world and how that is a part of his mission for his followers. Um, you can trace that all through the Bible. And, mm -hmm. and of course, we do that through some of our resources. But it also means that churches become uh, informed about the actual people who are attending their church. So, you know, the people of God and the mission of God, who are the, the unique group of people that God has brought to our congregation? We uh, help churches with tools to know that, to understand what are the occupational uh, demographics of their church, the vocational skills and callings that people have, and some of their discipleship challenges. And then we help uh, pastors actually become more informed about what are the unique uh, challenges that actually workers face, uh, the discipleship needs and pressures and opportunities. So Matt, that's a really helpful overview. Um, I wonder if we could dive a little bit more deeply into um, the component of helping churches understand the gifts and talents and and vocational skills of their of their congregation members or parishioners. That feels like new information to me. I don't know of a lot of groups that are helping churches um, think about that. What does that tool look like? Walk me through that if you might. Yeah, so it's a it's a simple survey. We have it uh, available on the Glue platform, G L O O 
It's a platform based out of Boulder, Colorado, and uh, a church can deploy it with a QR code or a link or a text. And essentially, it takes about five minutes for a congregation member to fill out. But the first question is, in what areas do you have you had skills that you've used in the past? Uh, and it's everything from it could be sports and coaching to business and entrepreneurship or uh, accounting or HR jobs, et cetera. Uh, the second question is around, then, what's your, your day job? What's your occupation? And uh, we, we've chosen about 52 options for that. Um, and then um, are there any particular groups of people that you have a heart to serve or that you've served in the past? Um, so there's an option there. And then uh, there's a few discipleship questions on how people experience um, their work and, and their faith. So how would a church benefit from having that information? What is the, you know, how does that roll up to to leadership within the church? How does that mobilize or begin to change the way that a church thinks about the skills and gifts inherent in its church, uh, in the church body? Yeah, so we help churches think through how that data applies to their worship gathering, their discipleship pathways, and their uh, outreach in the community. And some churches are, are going to have more energy around one of those areas or, uh, or another. Um, but let me just give you an example of two, two examples there. So in the worship gathering, most churches have a rhythm. Uh, it could be every single Sunday when they meet. It could be on a quarterly basis or a holiday basis uh, that they're praying for the congregation. Uh, there might even be commissioning moments when you're commissioning different groups. Uh, and, and the reality is most occupations have seasonal rhythms that are really important. They could be high stress. They could be uh, high impact. Um, and, you know, if you've got a bunch of farmers in your congregation, it's harvest time, it's mm. planting time. If you've got a bunch of small business owners, it might be seasonal tourism, or it could be around the holiday shopping right. season. If you've got government workers, it could be election cycles or new administrations coming in, et cetera. So we, we actually take a, a church and a pastoral leadership team to say, who are the people that are coming? And based on what you know of their schedule and their calendar, like what are the moments during the year that are super important for them? And as a shepherd of God's flock, how do you want to be uh, praying for them, commissioning them? Uh, so it's very much, uh, you know, uh, a church looking at their own people and who's coming in. For instance, you know, a lot of a lot of our churches that we attend, we're reminded not to be too concerned about consumerism during the holiday shopping season. We all need to be reminded of that. But a vocational approach says, wait a second, who's in our congregation? Uh, you know, we've got small business owners. We got people who work at mm -hmm. in retail and restaurants, and it's a time to say. You know, that represents 18% of our congregation. We want you to stand right now. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. We know this is a really stressful time for you, but we commission you uh, to be right. his representatives in those spaces. And uh, we bless you and we're behind you as your church. It's a very different mentality. It's saying who actually comes and how do we support them uh, in commissioning moments. So that's just one tiny example of how you might use that data in the worship gathering. That makes a lot of sense, that it, it, particularly with a, a unique congregation. And I know you do this work um, with congregations ac across the country. You also do a lot of gathering and convening, and you've built a network of like-minded churches. And I know you're trying to grow that network. What are the things that you do to bring churches together around some of these values? Um, I know in the past you've done conferencing, you have resource kits, you have written materials. Talk a little bit about the network that you're trying to, to build and, and where you're finding momentum. 
Yeah, you know, we we have done a number of things. We've had an, a national conference, the Common Good Conference. Um, we've had local city networks that have met together. Um, we're moving to a strategy now that any church in the country can engage us uh, with this skill mapping survey that I just talked to uh, talked about to engage in in coaching opportunities. And we've designed an experience called a church practicum. Mm-hmm. And a church can bring a team of four to six individuals. It could be their senior pastor, maybe a, someone in charge of the worship ministries, their discipleship pathways. And they actually bring them to an intensive with other churches where they're uh, going through a number of exercises to make a plan of what they want to do in vocational discipleship and mission. And we're connecting more and more churches in that way. So we've actually got a practicum coming up in uh, October of this year, and we hope to have uh, 10 or 12 churches that will be there with us about 40 people in the room. So we're trying to um, move to a, a, a time when we're working with motivated churches, getting them in cohorts of other like-minded churches that want to bridge the gap from ideas to practices. Yeah. You know, we're now in our eighth year and, and we've really seen that, you know, of our 4,300 pastors, most of them will say, I embrace the ideas a theology of work, uh, the, the people of God, their work matters. When you go on to say, well, what, how's that shaped your practice? Um, sometimes a lot of churches don't know where to begin. So we're kind of doubling down on helping churches make that transition from ideas to practices. And the church practicum is one of those environments we're doing that. So you threw out a number of 4,300 pastors that you work with or have worked with. How many churches would that represent? Um, uh, it's about 3,000 churches. 3, yeah, churches. so certain churches have more than one pastor that would be a part of our network. Okay. The other thing that I've I heard you say early on in our time together was you threw out the word economics, and I know that there is this burgeoning um, work and faith movement. You know, it, particularly if you look over the last twenty five years, just the number of resources that are out there to help people of faith and churches think about the integration of work and faith has has really um, taken off in pretty significant numbers. Um, but you use the word economics, and I'm curious why why you use that word and and why does a conversation about economics benefit this broader work and faith movement conversation? Yeah, one of the, it's a great question, John. One of the critiques of the broader faith and work movement has been that it's tended to be uh, kind of a white collar, upper management, oftentimes white male movement. I don't know if that's a completely fair critique of of where it stands today, but certainly historically that's been a case in the last uh, several decades. And what you find when you engage a lot of um, African-American churches, black churches, uh, minority churches, when they uh, engage in the question about faith and work, they oftentimes bring a a really strong economic lens. They're talking about how do we think about economic opportunity Mm -hmm. uh, in our our communities? How are we thinking about job opportunities? How are we thinking about uh, removing roadblocks that um, might be structural for people? Um, So the, the moment that you pivot and you say it's not just individual faith and work, me, Jesus, and my job, Mm -hmm. but it's moving from me to we, how do we think about the implications of work on a community, a neighborhood, a city? Uh, You have to start talking about economics. And probably where that is is most prescient is is churches thinking about expanding economic opportunity uh, in their communities. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. I, I, I 
I picked up on that language and it feels like a unique um, dimension or or that that made to flourish offers and, and the speech is a little bit different. You started to get at this, um, but I, I'm, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about why this moment is so important. Um, you know, we certainly there's been sort of this bifurcation that that many um, Christians have felt in the pews where they haven't felt much attention uh, drawn to the challenges of everyday work and the challenges that they face out side of the church, um, leading and serving in their communities and in their workplaces. But what's unique about the the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, where there are so many deep political and social divides? How does the work how does the work of Made to Flourish, or how can the work of Made to Flourish and other peer-like organizations be helpful at this moment where we experience and feel so much divisiveness both in and outside the church it's a really big question john and it's a really important question and you know our our longing if we look out 20 or 30 years from now if we're wildly successful and if organizations like us uh, the work you're doing um, at upper house is wildly successful we long for a day when christians are known for helping workplaces thrive and communities flourish Mm-hmm. And gosh, you know, I think we could all fill in the blank of communities or Christians are known for fill in the blank. What's what's the answer that comes to mind? A lot of things. It could be yeah. a certain type of political engagement or certain views on this. But um, we think that, um, you know, an approach to discipleship that realizes that Christians are no longer, this is no longer Christendom. We're no longer um, kind of in a seat of, of, of political power and influence. Um, a lot of people are talking about this, this shift, uh, away from Christendom. And, and I don't want to make too much about that. Like it's a return to the glory days. There's a lot of things that were messed up, right. As a, as a culture and a society, as we look in back in the decades, but, um, I, I think there is an opportunity for Christ followers to reimagine, um, the ways that they're living out their faith in public spaces, um, because Christianity right now is, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of headwinds on on the local church, on on Christians in the workplace, and um, at the same time, when you pick up the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, there's a recognition that there's so much brokenness and hurt and pain and injustice, and most of it is in the workplace, and. As you think about a simple, uh, you know, declaration by Jesus that we're called to be the light of the world, uh, a city on a hill, um, what does that look like? I think it looks like uh, the church and Christians, uh, as they're scattered in their various workplaces, um, showing forth something, something of the character of God in that space, um, being thoughtful, being trustworthy, um, those who seek justice, those who can be trusted with information, those who uh, are not cheating others, those who uh, bring excellence to their work. And I think that's a growing edge for local churches and, and, and organizations to say, how do we actually disciple, equip, empower people uh, to become the sort of people um, that... Uh, that that put Christ on display as they as they go to work each day. Yeah, so there's an opportunity to embody something different um, that's attractive, that's winsome, that's compelling. I, I wonder if you've thought a little bit about what that 
could mean in our moment where the impact of the church is receding and also more and more people are not identifying as having any religious background. Um, so is does work in faith and economics conversation and engagement in and through the church open up possibilities for um, drawing people back into church that may have left the church or maybe um, inviting people into a deeper spiritual journey, religious journey that may have never considered it in years past. I wonder what you're seeing in your own work and if Made to Flourish is you know, experiencing any trends in any directions related to those who no longer identify or those who have never identified with any religious affiliation? It's a little bit of a tricky question. I think, you know, I've been influenced by people like uh, Tim Keller and Russell Moore that have talked about the mushy middle. They make an argument that <laughs> it's always been about 20% of people, 10 to 20% of people who were committed Christians that were attending church and honestly believe what they said they believed and, and faith was something that was mm -hmm. uh, really significant in their life. And 10 to 20% of people for whom religion and faith and, and um, you know, church attendance or institutional intentions wasn't important. But what has changed is the mushy middle, that 60%. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I just heard Russell Moore tell a story about a senator he had, had met with, um, you know, 20 years ago. And the guy basically said, "Hey, I'm 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 running for Senate, and uh, I don't really believe the Christian message, but it's really going to help my Senate run if I'm connected to a church. Can you can you connect me to a church that mm -hmm. you know doesn't isn't too strong in what they believe, but I, I need to have a church affiliation." And that sort of impulse that you know to be a part of your local community, you were just involved in the church, whether or not I believed in that or not. I think that's going away. There's a sense of people are not. Um, you know, just going to show up to church. And in a way that means that probably fewer people are going to be in the pews on a Sunday. Um, I think there are also, also cultural uh, headwinds that even people who are committed to the Christian faith are attending church less. Um, I think when I was a pastor, it was something like the average person was 1.8 times uh, a month that they would attend. And those were like your most committed people uh, post-COVID. I think those numbers certainly are going to be even lower. So it does raise the question, okay, fewer people are coming to church and even your committed ones are coming to church less. How does the faith uh, of Christ, it's less about them coming in our space uh, in the program space, but how do we give people more of an imagination of how they're bringing the practices of the Christian faith, living out their faith out there, outside of the church walls? And I think it's just a practical matter. Like less people are coming to us. We have to think more about um, where they are. And this was actually, uh, this can be seen as a really good thing. I think Leslie Newbegin, um, you know, in, in a lot of his writings, he was he was concerned that people were leaving their offices uh, in the city. They're attending these churches in the suburbs, and the faith that they profess is completely disconnected from where they're spending the majority of their time. Well, uh, we're seeing churches now thinking more intentionally about how do we help them bring uh, their faith to where where they're spending the majority of their time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, you, you spoke a little bit about the racial differences. You know, the the predominantly white churches, black churches, the different sort of traditions uh, along racial lines. Um, 
What are you noticing around um, gender differences and generational differences? So as you engage your work, what are the unique needs of women in the marketplace? And then what have you noticed about some of the generational differences? Um, you know, I, I read so much about, you know, the, um, I don't even know what we're what we're at now. Are we a Gen Y or I'm not even sure where we are. Um, yeah. it, but, you know, the, certainly, you know, as someone who supervises staff of different ages, you know, I see and I don't have a large number. It's more anecdotal, but I see different kinds of needs and um, concerns and um, commitments that are um, d different across generations. Um, and again, my sample set is is relatively small. But as you work with you know thousands of churches, and you know hundreds and, and and thousands of pastors, what do you hear and what are you learning about how you attend to the particular needs of men and women, and then ge across generational differences? Yeah, it's a good question. I yeah, I'm going to have to speak in generalities, which are of course not a, true across the board, but just some trends of what we're seeing. There was a study done by Barna a few years back called Christians at Work. And there was some fascinating data around uh, women and, and, and satisfaction around work and a sense of calling, a longing to learn more about the integration of faith and work. And two data points stood out to me in that study. Uh, the first is uh, single women in their 20s and maybe early 30s that were young professionals had the highest markers for engagement with their faith and their work. Hmm. Um, the second data point was that those who had the most frustration, discontentment, and disillusionment about their faith and contentment and a sense of where they were with their work and, and their faith were uh, young mothers. Hmm. So that tells me that, you know, when we talk about this faith and work movement, how churches are engaging people with, with their faith and their work, likely your two most important audiences to pay attention to are uh, single young professional women as they're navigating an early career and a lot of questions about um, discrimination and calling right. and um, what they're longing for, mentorship, um, et cetera. Uh, and then secondly is people who are hurting and experiencing pain and confusion and questions of calling, uh, you know, young single moms that are wondering, can I have it both ways? What does it look like for me to be full-time in, in that, the paid workforce? What is it? Well, maybe I have a desire to be uh, home with my child for part-time or full-time. There's all these questions that are coming up. And I think both of those areas are um, really uh, ripe for churches to move towards. Um, I think what I'm seeing just anecdotally is my peer organizations, um, as they are doing conferences for uh, women professionals, those are some of the best attended conferences yeah. that they put on, which shows that it's an underrepresented, it's an underappreciated um, opportunity, I think, to uh, to speak to, to women who are really engaged on this issue. When it comes to generational differences, um, there might be some, uh, 
you know, similar comments there. I think we all understand that there's a changing world of work. Uh, the generation that our parents grew up in, you would enter the workforce, you might stay in a career path uh, for the rest of your life or, or a very clear um, journey that was marked out for you. I get this promotion, then I get that promotion. Maybe I go to that company, but it's all within a career trajectory. I think what we're seeing with younger generations now, there's much more fluidity uh, with young people. They might be saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work in this position for two or three years, and, and then I'm going to try a different field or go to a different company. There's a lot more mobility. Um, so that brings a lot more anxiety, a lot more tension, a lot more questions, but also a lot more um, fluidity in, in people understanding their, their sense of calling. So, um, you know, those are broad, broad trends, but they have implications for how churches are thinking about discipleship and coming alongside people in their work. Yeah, I think that transition, I don't know when it happened, several decades ago, but this idea of lifetime employment to lifetime employability, and mm. organizations have certainly thought about that. But I think the, genera the younger generations have absorbed that in ways that are different from um, even my generation. Um, so that's, that's, that's really helpful. I want to start to wrap up here, Matt, but I wonder if, um, if you could, I, I know there's a lot that Made to Flourish does that's on the big stage, conferences, convening, and then you also have lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I wonder if you might just share a highlight or two from your eight years with Made to Flourish. Um, was there a moment or a couple of moments that, um, that really capture the essence and the value of the work that, that that you seek to do and that, that just really stand out as you reflect back on your own work as, as being really special. Yeah, I think of, um, I think of the churches in our network who have this mindset of being vocationally informed in their discipleship and mission and just the stories that we see uh, coming out of that. So, you know, I think of a church, uh, down in Phoenix, Arizona, Redemption Church, where Jim Mullen serves. And he's been doing this for a long time and partly because of our influence, but partly this is just DNA and we love to tell his story, but he's taken a really, um, particular approach. He, he does something called an all of life interview. And hmm. he realized early on that, um, he was talking a lot about faith and work, but he wasn't showing. He, he was telling, not showing. You know, there's a biomedical engineer that met with him and said, I, I think I need to leave my job and do something more important in the nonprofit space. And of course, you know, maybe, maybe he should have done that, but he, the gym had a sense that this guy wasn't understanding that what he was doing mattered to God and was important in God's mission in the world. And he began this rhythm of saying, on a, on a regular basis, I'm going to put people up in front of our congregation, and I'm just going to interview them for five minutes on a Sunday. What do you do this time tomorrow? <laughs> what does that look like? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what are some of your joys? How do you uniquely image the God who works in your work? How does your work provide you an opportunity to love and serve your neighbor? And how can we pray for you? Yeah. So he starts doing this month after month after month after month. <clears throat> simple, simple liturgy. And people in this congregation start saying, oh my gosh, like, first of all, my church values what I do. And wait a second, I need to answer those questions too. Like, how is God at work where I am? And how is this an opportunity to love and serve my neighbor? And what are my unique pain points, the way I see brokenness in the world? And it positioned him so well when the pandemic hit. 
because a lot of churches were wrestling with people are not coming. Do we go online? What do we do? But Jim had this treasure trove of people. He understood their vocation and the congregation understood them. So he started interviewing them. And I didn't see any churches doing this like Jim did. But um, one week he had a chef who he did an interview with. And he said, uh, this chef was saying, hey, here's how you can, you're not going out to the grocery store because we're all afraid of getting COVID. Mm -hmm. But here's how to here's how to look in your cupboards and figure out how to uh, make a recipe with what you got there. And he, he just picked things that were in, in, in most people's cupboards. He, the next week he had someone who cut hair and they said, you know, we're not going to the barber because of COVID. <laughs> Could you walk us through how to do that? And Jim actually like did that for his congregation. And um, the next week he had a mental health counselor that's saying, you know what, we're all going insane with anxiety and depression. And I've got this counselor here. He's going to walk us through how we can um, stay mentally healthy and fit. And it's a totally different way of thinking yeah. about your congregation and about ministry. What qualifies as ministry? You know, they had the barber there, uh, had, had he gone on a mission trip to Guatemala and painted fences, we would have, we've done a slideshow and put moving music behind it, but this guy knows how to cut hair. Right. And it's like, how do we uh, allow him to serve the community in a time of great need? It's just incredible creativity. And oh, I see, I Pastors and churches doing that. I just love it. My heart I, sings. I love that story. And I, I want to end, Matt, and just to give you an opportunity to sort of speak into the microphone and just, you know, in, a, in 30 seconds, you know, what is your, what's your big dream for the church? Uh, what do you hope to see? Um, and I know you've, you've touched on this, but I want to give you the final word on this, particularly um, coming out of the really powerful story you just shared. Um, what's your biggest, deepest dream for the church and, and God's people in the church um, in, in the decades and the, and, and the centuries to come? I think I long for a day when it is just very normal. It's very normal that the average Christ follower, because of their engagement with their local church, has a very clear understanding and imagination of how their daily contribution, their work, whether it seems like something mundane or otherwise, they have a sense of how God cares deeply about that, how it relates to his mission in the world, and that they're growing in their longing to walk with God in that calling, in that work, and to offer it to him um, and, and, and walk with him in their daily work. Um, in some ways, it's um, my longing is that uh, it wouldn't be the exception. I wouldn't have to pull a story that uh, stands out, but uh, it would be ubiquitous that that this is the average experience of, of of a Christian that they understand they don't have to become a priest or a preacher, but they are actually a priest, and their parish is where they're spending a majority of their time in their workplace. So that's my longing. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And we will share lots of details about the great work of Major Flourish in our show notes. And that is a good word to end on. Matt, thank you for your work at Major Flourish. Um, that that dream that you have, you know, I I share that dream and I hope that it becomes a, an increasing reality in the life of our churches. And the world will be different if that's the case. And so I'm just grateful for the good work that um, that you carry out to, to make that vision a reality. So thanks for being with us today, Matt. Thank you, John. It's been my joy. Thanks for joining us. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.